You're listening to a Southside Baptist Church podcast with our pastor, Dr. Jeff Parker. For more audio content, please refer to our website at ssbaptistchurch.com. Well, after a prayer like that, there's no need in me praying. Thank you, Megan. We love you. And uh, just appreciate so much your heart. If you have your Bibles, remain standing. And I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 16, beginning at verse 13. We're going to do something a little different today. So kind of kind of be prepared and be open. Let me go ahead and set this up. Willie said, do you want me to move that? I said, no, that's, that's mine. I'm going to be using it today. So uh, I think he thought it had been left from Wednesday night. But we're going to do something a little different today. If you were in Sunday school this morning, you know for a, for a brief period of time, you probably were talking about some of the changes that will be taking place here at Southside. So what I want to do is I want to share with you a passage of Scripture. We're going to look at it for a moment, talk about the church, and uh, talk about the direction that we're going to be going here in the near future. Now, in Matthew chapter 16, verse 13, we've been going through a series in Mark, but today we're going to look here. Jesus has gathered His disciples in Caesarea Philippi. He's called a family meeting. You know, one of the ways you get a family meeting together is you either have a baby or you bury somebody and you've got a family meeting. The, uh, today's the good kind of family meeting, not only as a, as a family, biological family, but even as a church family. So he's gathered, he's having a family meeting here. And in Matthew chapter 16, verse 13, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I, the Son of Man, am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Jesus then asked, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He said, You're the Christos, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah that we've been looking for and waiting for. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Barjona, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades, of hell, will not overcome it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he warned his disciples that they not tell anyone that he was the Christ. Let's pray again. Lord, we thank you. We love you. We pray, dear Lord, that you'll cleanse me, use me as a vessel. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Now we're going to do something a little different today because I want to talk to you about the church and then we're going to talk a little bit about strategy and then we're going to talk about what we'll be doing here in the, in the near future. So hopefully everybody can see this. If you can't, we give you permission right now to get up and move. Now, when you find Jesus in Matthew chapter 16... Jesus is talking about the foundation of the church. Now, who's the foundation of the church? There's your big clue right there, Jesus. Jesus the Christ. 
Now, when Jesus gathered his disciples at Caesarea Philippi, when he had this family meeting, the most important question that he was to ask them was simply this, because see, he was getting ready to be, he was getting ready to be beaten, crucified, buried, three days later would rise, and then eventually he would ascend to heaven. He was going to leave the responsibility of taking the gospel to, the, to a lost world to a handful of men that looked like they were hardly fit to do anything. So what he tells Peter, first of all, he asks his disciples, the identity of Jesus Christ is the most important thing in the world and in our lives. Who you believe Jesus Christ to have been and who he is right now to you is the most critical thing in your life right now. Who is Jesus? So Jesus deals with his identity here and he asks his disciples, he said, first of all, tell me what the market is saying. What are they saying out there in the marketplace? What's going on out there in the general populace? So they begin to answer. Peter said, I meant, well, maybe John the Beloved said, well, some say you're John the Baptist, returned from the dead. Thomas said, well, some people are saying that you're Jeremiah. And, and perhaps Matthew said, well, some say you're one of the prophets. And then we got a problem. Is that too loud? Is it too, okay. Okay. Uh, but anyway, so Jesus the most critical thing is his identity. Who is he? And so finally he kind of brushes that off to the side. He looks at his disciple and he said, who do you say that I am? Now this is a critical moment. Let me tell you what was going on in heaven. The Old Testament prophets, that assembly there in heaven, they're leaning over the banisters of heaven because everything is weighing on that question. Here we have the beginning of the church. And so he asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? Peter immediately stands up, spokesman for the twelve. He can't, he can't hold himself back. He says, you're the Christos, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah. You're the one that we've been looking for. You're the one that the Old Testament prophets were prophesying about. You are Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now in that moment, that is a critical moment, Jesus said, Peter, let me tell you, you didn't reason this. The power of the, of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the Father God has revealed this to you and upon this rock. Now let me tell you something. When he said rock, he uses the word in the Greek, Petra. He's not talking about the, the faith of Peter. He's talking about who? He's talking about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the Petra, the bedrock, the foundation of the church. But what is important is that he commends Peter and he says to Peter, he says, Peter, and upon this rock, Peter, you're a Petros. You're a stone that's built on this foundation. This is the foundation. You're one brick. And the reason that you are included in the house, the building of God, is because of your profession of faith. You are saved by grace through faith. And so he says, Peter, you're Petros. A lot of people, Catholics, they get a little confused here. But when Peter is writing, even in First and Second Peter, he talks about himself and you and I being lithos, Petros, being little pebbles, stones that are built on who? So here Jesus is the foundation of the church. Now everybody look this way because some of you are a part of this and some of you are not. What is that? That's the core. No church is able to survive 
and flourish and be everything that God would have it to be without the core. Now, if you could think of it this way, you could think of it like an acrostic. People who are part of the core, these are people who are committed. They're here. You can count on them. They're here Sunday morning. They're here Wednesday night. They're here every time the doors are open. They are committed to Jesus Christ and the mission and the purpose of the church. They are a hundred percent sold out on board and you can't build a church without the core. These are people that C are committed. Oh, they're obedient. As best they can, they're trying to live in obedience to the word of God. They listen. They're not perfect. They fail, but they're trying to live in obedience to the word of God in every area of their life. Secondly, they're, they're thirdly, they're responsible. The R stands for responsible. When you give the core something to do, they're going to see it through. Hell or high water will not stop them. They are committed. They're trying to live an obedient life. And they are responsible for whatever task you give them. If they don't show up, you're on your phone immediately finding out, trying to figure out where they are. Already this morning, I was trying to assess, where is Eric, where is Sarah? And then I begin to remember. I want to know when people are not here where they are because like a parent, when a child doesn't show up when they get off the school bus and they're not on that bus, let me tell you, a parent immediately is going to be alarmed and they're going to be trying to find that child. When the core is not here, I immediately recognize it and want to find out where they are. Something's wrong. When the worship leader's not here on a Sunday morning, something's wrong. So... The core, and every church must have this, is committed, they're obedient, they're responsible, they're an encourager. That E stands for encourager. They are positive. They are affirming. They're excited. They're exhorting and encouraging the leadership. Man, they're plugged in, they're sold out. They are excited. But let me tell you something. The core are people who are committed, they're obedient, they're responsible, and they are what? They are encouragers. They're not negative. They're not gossips. They're not simply always talking bad news. They're not Eeyores. It's not half empty. It's half full. They are excited about their church. Now next we've got this, and some of you fit here. These are people, they're just the congregation. Am I spelling it correctly? They're just the congregation. They may be here, they may not. And you're glad for the congregation. Then up above this, you've got, let me, let me draw one more. You've got a what? What is that word there? Can you read it? Community. Now what happens is, as you and I, the church, the congregation, as we start reaching out into the community and people begin to come into the church, it begins to put weight just like a building. The, high, the more stories you go up, the better foundation you better have. Now let me ask you something. Is there a problem with the foundation? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. He's not only the foundation of this church, he's your foundation. No matter what storm may hit your life, remember this, Jesus, as he closed out the Sermon on the Mount, you remember what he said? He said, what shall I like in somebody who listens or doesn't listen? He said, they're like a man, he goes out, 
and he builds his house on a solid rock. He, he clears away the rubble. He finds a solid piece of granite rock. He builds his house, and when the storms come, that house, it gets beat against. It storms beat against it, wind, rain, and all of this, but it still stands after the storm. That's you and I individually as well as corporately. But he said, the foolish man, what does he do? He doesn't take no time. He doesn't care about the foundation. He just builds on anything. He goes out there. He just says, well, this dirt, this sand is about as good as any. I'll just put me up a temporary, I'll build me a building here. And it's not long before the wind and the rain and the floodwaters and the storm hits. And what happens to that house? It's just completely washed away. You and I are on the foundation of Jesus Christ. Some of you are in this room and you're part of the core. I would like to believe that a lot of you are, but let me tell you what happens. Sometimes the core has cracks in it. And you don't realize what those cracks are until you start putting weight down on it. You start reaching. Your congregation begins to grow. Your community begins to grow. And some of you are in the congregation. You need to come on in here. You need to take that next step and be a part of the core. But as you and I are reaching out into the community then it begins to put pressure. Let me give you an example. Sheila and I, we went to see this movie, uh, The Same Kind of Different as Me, based on a true story. Now, years ago, uh, Christy Ware gave me that book. When you gave me that book, you said, Brother Jeff, this book impacted my life, and would you read that? Ledge, I was with you in New York. You were there on business. And while Ledge was in his conference, I was reading that book. That book shook my life. This past week, we, the, uh, the organization out of Dallas bought a thousand tickets in order to allow men and women the opportunity to see that movie. That movie is worth everybody going to see. You'll probably cry. Sheila and I, we cried. But it is the story of a woman whose life was affected and changed when she began to step out into her community and begin. she dreamed of an African-American man she dreamed of a black homeless man. She had no idea, never seen that man before. She told her husband one day, said, we've got to go into, she went into, um, went into the city. She said, we've got to go. I've got to find this man. She saw this man in her dreams. She went into a homeless area, went into a nonprofit soup kitchen, began to serve when all of a sudden her and her husband, who's, a, who's an art dealer, very wealthy, very affluent, she all of a sudden they said, there he is. He said, what? She said, there's the man I dreamed about. That's the man right there. And that man was filled with all kinds of anger. But God used her to bring a light to that homeless community, bring a light to that nonprofit soup kitchen, and God began to do something through her and in her. She began to see the community. Sheila and I went to that movie on Friday. We came to this church to check and make sure everything was ready, cleaned, and set. When we got ready to leave, across the street on that corner was a violent fight. One guy had what looked like a baseball bat or a large club. Three guys were fighting him and he was fighting and they were fighting literally to the point of trying to kill one another. One of them finally got into a nice vehicle, tried to drive away when one of those guys grabbed up a rock that big, threw it through the window. 
Then he took off running and the guy in the vehicle tried to run him down and kill him. And wrecked the vehicle right here on the road right in front of the church. At the same time in that moment as I'm trying to call JPD, in the same moment at that time, T over here is out in the middle of Raymond Road in an altercation with somebody else holding a rake. And Sheila looked at me and began to cry. We had just left Christy, that movie. And Sheila began to cry and we both got so sick we were nauseated. You don't have to go far to find a mission field. It's right across the street. Some of you out of the hood have the greatest ability to lead this church into the hood and make a difference in this community. Our Wednesday night crowds are almost as big as this. If you, if you put up what we've got in your youth and you put down children, we're probably running 60 to 70, maybe 75 on Wednesday nights if you summed us all up and put us together. Why? Because people are more apt to come because Marge, they love your soup and love your cornbread and love what you're doing and then they're able to plug in. Celebrate Recovery is getting ready to move to Wednesday night so that we can better accommodate young families who they need somewhere to put the kids. They'll eat a soup meal. They'll be loved on. If they want to go to Bible study, they can do that. If they want to, they've got the kids in age graded all the way from preschool up to youth and, and they can be involved in Celebrate Recovery. If they've got an addiction or a problem that needs to be dealt with but you cannot build a great church this church needs to move as Jim Collins said from good to great and you can't do it without commitment without people that are a part of that core committed obedient responsible and encouragers and if there's cracks or there's flaws in the core bitterness unforgiveness racism whatever it may be, then when we try to put weight on the core by building the congregation, ultimately reaching the community, such as the houses that are right around this church, then the outcome is, is that we are in the process of building up and then before long we're just drifting back down again. It takes work to build a great church. Now, one more thing, and that's this. What, what is our goal? What are we trying to do? I told a guy a while back, I had a lady ask me last night about being a mentor to her husband. And uh, I, I told her husband, I said, this is, uh, this is a good way to help you and I understand the church. What, what are we about? What are we trying to do? You're exactly right. You know what? I ask... I asked Janice this morning about Brandy. I said, Janice, I knew Alex and Daniel were be, to be baptized. I said, Brandy came forward. I said, is Brandy to be baptized? I said, has Brandy been saved? And Janice made the statement, yes, right at my dining room table. Was that what you said? And she followed in believers' baptism. Now, let me tell you, this is a baseball diamond. And I think that Rick Warren wrote one of the best books. He should have just stopped there because that was the best book he ever wrote. It's called A Purpose Driven Church. But in A Purpose Driven Church, he basically said this, we're just trying, first of all, you and I as a church, we're just trying to get people to first base. What's first base? What is that? That's membership. Now that means membership in the body of Christ. 
That means what you and I witnessed this morning. We saw Daniel, we saw Alex, we saw Brandy make public their decision to follow Jesus Christ. And what they're saying is now, we are a member and a part of this family, the church family, the body of Christ. Our responsibility, our responsibility as a church, where we work, where we go to school, where we live every day of our life. Our responsibility is to go out into this community and do everything that we can to bring these people into membership, first base, the body of Christ. That's what we want. Whether we're doing it through sack lunch giveaways or coffee and pastries down there at the bus stop to the homeless or whether we're walking across the street because some in this room need to go across the street to that peach-colored house because they are not listening to me. The boy that's out there in the middle of a fight, him and his brother, his mom died of cancer, and they grieved and broke her heart, and I can't reach them. But Russell... You could. Russell, you must. We're trying to get people into the body of Christ members, wherever we are. Quit apologizing for going to South Jackson. I laughed Friday night. Sheila and I were eating with Kevin and Julie and Julie sent a text to Sheila, said we'll be about five minutes late. They come in, they sit down. You know Kevin, he's just such a great guy, unique individual, both of them, great couple. Kevin looked at me and he said, well, you'd like the way, the reason I'm running late. I hope you don't mind me saying this, Kevin, but it really doesn't matter anyway, I'll say it anyway. <laughs> Kevin said, uh, you, you like why I was running late? I was just trying to get my tithes sorted out. I said, amen, hallelujah. But you know what I told Kevin? I said, Kevin, let me tell you something. This week, this church affected the lives of families. We did everything from from minister to families, ministering to the homeless, giving people groceries, effectively doing everything we possibly could to reach our community. Not many churches. There's three churches in the Jackson area that have spent over $50 million on their facilities. $50 million plus. That could buy every abandoned house probably in the city of Jackson. You are a part of a church that you don't have to apologize. And when you go to see the movie, um, unless you're just not plugged in at all, when you go to the city, see the movie, that movie, the same kind of different as me, the reality is you can have a certain bit of feeling like, Lord, we are trying to do that. We are, we are small, but I'm going to tell you something. We do a lot with what we've got. And the chaplain of the Dallas Cowboys knows that today. Sitting on the sideline, he knows that today. You may think, well, we're not much. The L.A. Dodgers used to listen to our podcast. You'd be surprised how far a little church like this can go. So membership is critical. And then as people become, as they become members, eventually we want them... um, we want them to begin to mature. We, then we become about maturity because we're trying, to, we're trying to get them to second base. Can you imagine being in a ball game and watching a baseball game where a guy refuses to get off first base to run to second? 
Yeah, I mean, uh, now, Megan, you, you, you've got standing by the first base, next to the first baseman, you've got a guy that's outside the boundaries. He's standing there. What is he called? What is he doing? He's a, he's a coach, right? And, and when the guy is running to first, he's going to tell him either stop or he's going to tell him to go on and round it to second. He's going to maybe be hollering, telling him, telling the third base to coach, tell him to keep going on to third. You know, he goes from a single to a double to a triple to a home run. Even at times an infield home run. But imagine you get somebody there, they, don't, they, they, they stop at first base and they're trying to get him to run on to second. That's silly. In fact, if, if they could clog up the whole game and it would be a, it'd be a horrible game. Now, you, you and I have to understand, we're not trying to get people saved. We're trying, first of all, to get them saved, but let them become a member of the church. Get, then we want them to mature. We want them to begin to grow. We, we are in the process now through small group, LT, uh, LGBT. Uh, LGBT, no, it's not LGBT. Man, I wish we quit using all these initials now. Life Transformation Group, LTG. That's, we're going to have to change that. We're going to do something about that. We're going to come up with a new. We're going to, have to come up with a new acrostic for that one. Let me apologize to everybody who's listening by website right now. No, I'm teasing. But the point is, is that we're trying to get them to second base. We're trying to get them to maturity. We want them to grow, learn the Bible, go through chronological Bible, begin to grow as a believer, so that they can become part of the core. We need help. And then eventually what we want them to do, we want to involve them in ministries. We want them involved in the food pantry, the clothing closet, the holiday bills coming up. Man, we get churches and people that'll come in, they'll plug in. We'll run vans and begin to bring in the homeless and people in this community have nowhere else to go. Other people, they'll come and be a part of that. We want people involved in ministry. People that are working in the food pantry, packing up lunch uh, meals so that when Wednesday night, people who came Wednesday night, we were giving out bags of food. We need that prepared, already made ready. So we want people involved in ministry because as you get involved in ministry, we know you're part of the core. And then finally, what do you think the last one is? He said, that's missions. Last thing is, when you and I are so plugged in, when we are a member, when we're maturing as a follower of Christ, when we begin to plug into various ministries, then before, and let me tell you, Willie can't do it all. Somebody needs to ride with Willie. Let me learn that route. Let me learn where these people are. Let me go visit that home. Because what we want is people that one day are coming up to us, and you know what they're saying? In 2018, y'all are planning two trips to Zimbabwe. We pray and hope. Uh, I'd like to be a part of that mission because once people go on a mission trip, their lives are never the same. They're never the same. Hey, it's one thing for Midian Chitsede to come here from Zimbabwe to come here. It is another for you to go and see where he lives. Let me tell you where he lives. He lives in a place just about like, he lives in a place just about like this. That bright, smiling, positive attitude, African, Zimbabwean, who is a part, who not only is a part of my family, but in many ways became a part of this church family, who we help supplement in his ministries and his work. That's what he lives in. Some of you need to go see that so you realize just how blessed you are. And what it feels like when you come back into Atlanta 
for into an international uh, airport and you see welcome home, American. This is missions. Now, last thing, and then we'll, we'll close in a moment. Megan, don't do like Jeffrey. As soon as I say we're going to close, he looks like the looks like the road runner coming up out of the sound room there running to I mean I usually beep beep I have to be guarded the the last thing is this you and I understand when I write this word right now or let me write two words you and I know what this means What is that? Racial tension. We're living in a time in America that there's a great deal of racial tension. Seems in many ways, I heard an individual the other day who's my age, he made this statement, he said, this is as bad, if not worse, than it was in the Civil Rights Movement. I grew up in that time. One of my favorite movies is Denzel Washington in the movie, Remember the Titans, because I lived that out. Everything that he tells that story, true story of Coach Boone, who was an African-American coach, who was all of a sudden put the head coach of an integrated school and a black and white were side-by-side seeking to coach a team, and they went to the top and they became a winner. There's a place in there when Denzel Washington says to his team, because the head of the school board, who's African-American, walks out with, with Coach Boone, Denzel Washington, this character that he's playing, true, true-to-life character, and he says, I just want to tell you, you lose one game and you're fired. And Coach Boone, this black coach, who's on the cutting edge and in the middle of this integration that was going on in the public school system, and I remember it well. All of a sudden, he's upset. He looks at the head of the school board. He said, you mean you brought me here with my family? What about my little girl? And this black member of the school board looks at him and says, I'm sorry. But he and a white coach side by side begin to raise up a team. And that team becomes an unbelievable team black and white as they come together. At first, there's tension. And there's something that Denzel Washington, when he plays that Coach Boone, and he's just a great actor, but there's something that he says that I think is so powerful. He looks at his players at halftime. I want you to listen. I want everybody's antennas, spiritual antennas up real high. Coach, Coach Boone says this, true story. He looked at his players, black and white, who have wrestled through their differences and they've come together and his assistant is a white coach. And he looks at his team and he says this. He said, this is a white school, white suburb. White suburb. He said, they have not faced the conflict and the difficulty. They've not faced the obstacles that we've faced. He said, they know nothing about what we've gone to and through. And then he challenged that team and they went out and they defeated one team after another all the way to the state championship and they won it. They moved from good to great. 
Southside is a good good team, a good church, in more ways than one. But we are not great. Why? Because we lack the commitment. Committed, obedient, responsible, encouragers, sold out, trying to get people to first base membership. There's a lot of racial tension. You and I have been there a long time. We've been battling with this a long time. We've had a lot of people leave. Most people, many people that leave, you know why they leave? They just can't take it. You know, I was telling a story in there to my men's class. You know what they said? Even Alan, chairman of our deacons, he said, I didn't know that. I said, there's a lot of things you don't know, and there's a lot of things you don't know. None of you. You don't know the cost. You don't know the battles, both with white and black, both with denominational entities and businesses. You don't know the battles that this man has gone through and what some of the membership of this church has gone through to be where we are today. And there are a lot of people that say, we won't make that journey. And let me tell you about those people. They've made it a lot tougher for this city. I preached at a church at Brandon. It was packed. It had everything from the attorney general to some of the key businessmen in the city. And at a certain point, I quoted somebody in Brandon who said, let's keep the problems in Jackson in Jackson. I said, that's the equivalent of your oncologist sitting down with you saying there's a cancer, but we're just going to overlook it and hope it goes away. I said, because cancer will affect every part of your body. You think you can keep crime in the city of Jackson? You, don't th- you think you can keep the problems of Jackson and Jackson and somehow think because you live in the suburb and you get enough police force, you can keep it from coming in? You are crazy. Let me tell you what the key is to every city in America. And I've been to all 50 capitals, been to every state. Let me tell you, from Honolulu to Juneau to Sacramento to, uh, to Albany, New York, to Tallahassee, Florida, Nashville, Tennessee, and on and on the list goes. Let me tell you the problem. The church in New York City, First Baptist Church, sat on, sat on the steps of the church, and the only one meeting in that church was a handful of an, an Asian congregation. Why? Because most churches left the cities of Jackson and refused to stay vested in them. And the problem in America is not the fault of Washington, not the fault of politicians. The fault of the problem in America is the church. We liquidated our assets, we closed our churches, and we left. We stopped our ministries. And God forgive us and have mercy on us. But we're here. We may be a little low today. We got flu bugs and weather and everything else working against us. Those people can listen on our podcast. But where do we go now? And the answer is the logical next step is for the man who's seated right here to my right not to be the assistant, the associate pastor, but for he and I to be co-pastors. What are we doing For Amanda, Amanda will tell you to reach the Sudanese. You've got to become a little bit Sudanese. You've got to learn their language. You've got to learn their dress. You've heard me say as when I was in Zimbabwe, I was walking around as a a grown man going vura. I was going chi-chi in Zimbabwe, chi-chi, which means what is this? They would look at me and say vura, water. 
I began to dress down. I didn't wear, I didn't dress up like I used to. I wasn't in no fancy three-piece suit when I was back at Natchez, Dwayne anymore. All of a sudden, I began to dress like the African. I began to talk like the African. I began to do everything I could to become indigenous to that community, that environment, that culture, in order to get them to take the gospel to them. I began to become like one of them. That's what this church has been able to do, and we do it most effectively on Wednesday nights. We do it best on Wednesday nights. Why? Because we recognize that Sunday mornings at the time we meet are very difficult in this culture and in this community to reach people who a lot of times have been up really late on Saturday night. So we do it really well on Wednesday night, and we're doing it better. But what's the next step? The next step is, is that Russell is now one of our deacons and our, our, our secretarial staff and those people that are involved in our ministries in the office through the week are Willie and Bell. As Reggie has not only been our minister of youth and now if we can find an intern, God help us, if we can find an intern, people are not busting, biting at the bitch to come here and plant their life in the inner city. But if we can find an intern to come alongside of Reggie, then Reggie will be more truly what I'm getting ready to say. Reggie and I will be co-pastors. Uh, his name, his last name is Glenn, so publications, John, from here on, will be uh, uh, co-pastor or pastor, pastor Reggie Glenn, pastor slash administrator, because Reggie has said, give me more administrative responsibility, and I'm glad to do that. And let me check that because we could have a baby. No, not yet. This will be my 16th grandchild. This will be my 11th grandson. I'm now officially able to put together a football team. My, my, middle, my middle linebacker has been battling the flu and he's not here. That's Caleb. He's a giant even in his own class. <laughs> but anyway, where was I? We're, got, we're getting ready to uh, develop a co-pastor. Reggie will be uh, Pastor Reggie Glenn. He'll be the pastor slash administrator. He'll begin to take a lot of church administrative responsibilities. We still need an intern to, to take uh, more leadership of the youth ministry so that he can begin to be truly what God has gifted him to be a pastor. Let me tell you how committed I am to this. This has been, um, been something that I believe God has had for us all along. I believe uh, Tamara, his wife, who's doing her residency in psychiatry, Tamara came here by mistake. Years ago, as a college student, she was trying to find a particular church, got lost, turned around, ended up in our parking lot, came here, and settled here. Tamara, who's now finished medical school and doing her residency, and I'm really proud of her. She eventually brought this young guy, I was going to say good-looking guy, throw that in there. <laughs> young, good-looking guy named Reggie. And... Uh, we would meet downstairs. I was teaching the young uh, student ministry, college students, and 
So Reggie being, man, I just fell in love with Reggie. I thought this is a sharp guy. He was a computer science major. You don't know that, but he is brilliant. Even that under, those undergraduate degrees, computer science, he's gone on. He's getting his Master of Divinity from uh, Southern Baptist Seminary, New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. Um, he's finishing up. He's on the home stretch of that. Uh, they have two great kids, Abby and, and RJ. And uh, I told my class this morning, I said this, I said, you know, I said, if I were dying, I would tell Sheila and my kids and grandkids, this is your pastor. I know no man of God, I know no pastor that I would entrust with my family any more than this man. He has not only earned the respect of the black congregation member here, he has earned the respect of the white, he's earned the respect of black, white, young, old, rich, poor people from all walks of life. Now, what does this do? This positions you and I as a church to confront this racial issue. Now, it's not because of that. We're doing this because we feel strongly that this is logically not only the right step, but it's spiritually the right step. We really believe this is what God has called us to do. We're being obedient, we believe, to the Lord. So Reggie and I will share this position. When people say, who's your pastor? You'll smile and say, well, we've got two. And they'll say, well, who is it? And you'll say, well, one of them is, is Pastor Reggie Glenn and, uh, and Jeff Parker. And on publications, because Glenn comes G before P, John, his name will go above my name. Uh, I'll continue to do the bulk of the preaching. Now, it's not because I didn't try to get Reggie to do it. Reggie just said at this point, he just said, I'm not ready I'm trying to finish up school, Tamara's residency, just got a lot of things going on. He said, I just need at this point to kind of sit and learn and listen, and so I'm comfortable doing that. But he will be preaching. Uh, I'll begin to write more. Uh, I'm working on a book on racism and, and the racial conflict that I really believe God has put on my heart, so I'll be doing that. I have been doing that and hope to finish soon. But that's where we are. Why? Because we want to, as best we can, not listen. We don't want to be part of the problem. We want to be part of the solution. You know, I, I, you know I've, I've stayed out of this NFL conflict and all of that, and I don't want to get in it now. Because anybody that doesn't think there's a disparity in our penal system when it comes to African American making up the majority of what are in our penal system is crazy. Anybody that doesn't think that the vast majority of law enforcement problems stem between law enforcement and African American and doesn't recognize that, they've got a problem. They're blind. And you and I know when you've been in the inner city for a while and you come out of the hood, you and I recognize a lot of these problems. That's the great thing of being a part of a church like this. Now, at the same time, I don't mind anybody kneeling, doing whatever. They can stand on their head. But if that's all they're doing and doing nothing else to solve the problem, I have a real problem with that. If they're doing it just for popul popularity or publicity, then I have a problem with that. Now let me say real quickly, Colin Kaepernick has given millions of dollars to the problem. Most people don't understand race relations, white or black, because they're not where you are. They're not in Bible study 
preaching, watching as a white girl, black men, young men, people from all what black pastor, me, white, you know, we just we just are who we are. We go under the same baptismal waters. We're covered under the same blood. But I'm going to tell you something, folks. It's time for us to step up and be everything that God would have us to be. So I want to ask you to stand. And um, Reggie, I want you to come here and I want you to lead us in a prayer. And I want you, Reggie, to pray for us that God, and you'll probably have to go to a mic, but I want you to pray for us today. First of all, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, then you need to do what Daniel, Alex, and Brandy did. You need to come today repentant of your sin. That means you feel remorse, shame. I'm sorry, Lord, I'm a sinner. I repent. I, I want to change my life. I want to change my life. I want my life, my actions to match what the, is going on in my head and in my heart. That's number one. So if you've never given your life to Christ, in this invitation, we want you to come. Ledge, you'll be here. I'll be here. Reggie, you'll be here in a moment. And we would love to receive you as a member of this church so that you can go from first base to second, which is maturity. And from maturity to ministry. And finally to missions. We want you plugged in. If you're here today and you say, well, I don't have a church home, then this is a good place to call home. You say, well, I've been hurt. Our chairman of deacon said in the men's meeting, in our men's Sunday school, he said, when I came to this church, I was hurt. He said, I didn't really care for the church. You know, a lot of people, you know what Jeffrey says? Jeffrey says, this is a great place to heal when you've been hurt by the church. So maybe you need to come plant your life. Maybe you need to rededicate your life. Maybe you, listen, maybe you are endangering the mission of this church and what God wants to do because you're not sold out. You're not committed. You're not obedient. You're not responsible. You're not an encourager. You, know you know what a Marine from Vietnam said? He said, I'm afraid the enemy, the devil, figured out something. If he could get enough of us wounded, we would be so wounded we could never be in the battle. Do you know what he went on to say? He said, one American soldier wounded in Vietnam. He said what they did, the Vietnamese set up mines that wouldn't kill a soldier, it would wound a soldier. Because if they could wound an American soldier, then in the process they tied up five or six medics and other soldiers trying to take care of the one soldier who was wounded but he wasn't dead. Some of you need to get beyond your wounds and quit draining the church of its personnel and its provisions, and now get your life where God wants it to be, beginning to grow, beginning to mature, so that in turn you're able to begin, listen, to begin to reach out and minister to other people. God wants to take your suffering. God even wants to take your sin. Set you free of it and use it as a testimony so you can reach other people that are hurting. So you listen as... Pastor Reggie prays. If God is leading you, you come to this altar. Whatever you need to do, whatever business you need to do with God, you do it now. Megan, you can go ahead and come too. Everyone bow your heads where you are. Uh, dear God, uh, God, thank you, God, for 
God, for conviction. God, I thank you for um, your word of truth. And God, how it, it um, readily and continually stirs our hearts. And God, I thank you, God, for this family. And God, I thank you for how, God, even though we may be people from different walks of life with, with multiple differences, God, we have one thing in common, and that is our love for you and the fact that you died so that we could, so that we can become a part of your body. And so, Lord, we pray, God, that as this church continues, God, to make decisions, God, to, to not only to give you glory, God, and to do what you've called us to do, God. God, help us to be wise about our decisions. God, help us to use your wisdom. God, help to change and mold hearts, God, so that people would um, come on board, God, and see what you are doing. But before you do that, God, you know that we have to change our heart individually. And so, Lord, I pray, God, that there's anyone, God, who, who stands against you, anyone, God, that has a hang-up or something, God, that they need to let go of so that they're able to move forward with the family, God, I pray they would do so. Because, God, we know that you know, the, wor the, the only thing worse than just having a lingering problem, God, is a lingering problem that no one will talk about. And so, Lord, I pray, God, that we would come to the altar, that you would deal with our hearts first, God, that we would repent, God, not, re not repent in the sense of say I'm sorry and then go back to our sin, God, but but God, mean that, God, you are, the, you are the living God, and you have the power to take our sins away, and you have the power to heal us from all the hurts and hang-ups that we have. And God, I pray that you would do that for each and every one of us individually, God. God, if, it's, if it's been, someone's been hurt by the church, God, let them find healing in you. If there is, God, if there's any racial tension, God, let them find healing in you. Let them find healing in a multiracial body, God. Sometimes we forget, God, that Jesus died for a multi-ethnic bride. God, he, he died so that we would all have a right to, to be, to, well, that we would all have the privilege to come and sit at your feet, God, and worship you in spirit and in truth. And so, God, I pray, God, that you would, God, ultimately, God, God, that you would heal our church, God, if there's any healing that needs to be done, that you would heal us individually. God, that you would watch over us, God, and help us, and help guide our plans, God. Let us do what you want us to do, God, because it is your will. Not our will be done, but yours. And God, when we do this, God, let it, let it be known, God, that as we do this, God, let us, let us be a light on a hill. God, let us not hide our light under the lampshade. God, let us be people, God, who, when people see us, God, and they wonder, why, God? Why do they have such a joy? Why do they serve in such a way, God? And even with all the tension and everything that goes on in our communities and our cities and this world, why do they still serve? And the answer is simple, because we love you. We want to keep your commandments. And we want to please you with all things we do. In Jesus' name.